Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, happy Friday. It is May 21st. How are you listeners? Hope you had a great week. Aside from being shown the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat by the Golden State Warriors on two separate occasions, we're good on this end. We're also excited to bring you a conversation this week with Anatoly Yakovenko, the founder of Solana, a blockchain that supports builders around the world who are creating crypto apps. The company has come up here and there in conversations with crypto enthusiasts and serious investors, some of whom have mentioned to us that Solana is a company that they deem pretty promising in this brave new decentralized world. Turns out they aren't alone. We ran a story about Solana last Friday and more than a quarter of a million people clicked through to read it. We hope you will find the company just as interesting. We think you will. But first, some news. Silicon Valley is known for its antitrust trials, and the Apple Epic case is shaping up to be a doozy. Epic Games, maker of Fortnite, one of the world's most popular video games, is challenging Apple regarding the 30% fee Apple charges developers for distributing games through its App Store. Today, Apple CEO Tim Cook took the stand and attempted to play dumb. When he was asked how much Apple spent on research and development for the App Store, Cook said he didn't know. Apple didn't break out its numbers that way. He also said that Apple does not break out the App Store's income as a standalone business. But perhaps Cook's greatest obfuscation was when he said he didn't remember the specific numbers behind Apple's deal with Google that keeps Google as the default search engine on iOS. Estimates are that Google pays Apple between $8 billion and $12 billion per year, not an inconsiderable sum, even for Apple. U.S. District Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers was clearly skeptical about Cook's performance, asking pointed questions about the level of competition Apple faces, as well as Apple's decision to lower its fees from 30% to 15% for developers who earn $1 million or less in App Store revenue. It may have been a rough day for Cook, but at least he has some friends out there. Minutes after Cook took the stand, Evan Spiegel, Snap CEO, told a reporter that his company is happy to pay Apple's 30% commission rate on in-app transactions. We really feel like Snapchat wouldn't exist without the iPhone and without the amazing platform that Apple has created, he said. On the crypto front, this was either a terrible week or a really great week, depending on your point of view. Following the news of China reaffirming its ban on crypto services for its financial institutions, Bitcoin plunged 30% to near $30,000 at one point on Wednesday. Some surely saw it as a buying opportunity. Still, for Bitcoin bulls, there is reason to worry about the ripple effects of China's actions, even while China has never been big on cryptocurrencies. Back in 2013, its central bank barred financial institutions from handling Bitcoin transactions. Then, in 2017, the central bank in China declared initial coin offerings, or ICOs, as illegal, which again caused Bitcoin's price to fall. China has not barred individuals from holding cryptocurrencies, but it has said on social media that consumers will have no protection if they incur losses from related investment transactions. And it has very clearly implied that Western regulators have been too relaxed about crypto. Under the Biden administration, they seem to agree, too. Yesterday, the U.S. Treasury Department said it's taking steps to crack down on cryptocurrency markets and transactions by requiring any transfer worth $10,000 or more to be reported to the IRS. 
Meanwhile, the new head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, Gary Gensler, yesterday said that federal financial regulators should be ready to bring cases against bad actors in crypto and other emerging technologies. Not last, a new acting comptroller of the currency suggested he's not all that excited about what his predecessor, Brian Brooks, tried to push through when he was in the role. As some listeners might remember, Brooks, a former chief legal officer at Coinbase, was appointed as the acting head of the OCC by the Trump administration in May of last year, and he wasted little time in trying to push through a number of crypto-friendly efforts, making all kinds of announcements and publishing interpretive letters. It was never really clear how much weight Brooks's letters and announcements carried. Now, the new acting head of the agency, Michael Shu, basically suggested this week that everything Brooks did is going to be revisited and scrutinized. Said Shu in prepared testimony this week, My broader concern is that these initiatives were not done in full coordination with all stakeholders, nor do they appear to have been part of a broader strategy related to the regulatory perimeter. I believe addressing both of these tasks should be a priority. Up next, our interview with the founder of Solana, a blockchain platform that is being followed by a growing number of crypto investors. But first, a word from our sponsor. Autonomous vehicles are well on their way to revolutionize the way that we, as well as all of our staff, move around the world. At TechCrunch's virtual transportation event, TC Sessions Mobility, you will discover crucial trends shaping this rapidly expanding sector and find out how technology, including artificial intelligence and cloud-based services, will define what's possible. Join us online this June 9th and save 10% on your ticket with promo code STRICTLYVC at techcrunch.com forward slash mobility. Solana isn't widely known yet outside of the crypto community, but insiders think the blockchain platform is interesting for a wide variety of reasons, beginning with its founder, Anatoly Yakovenko, who spent more than a dozen years as an engineer working on wireless protocols at Qualcomm, and who says he had a light bulb moment at a San Francisco cafe several years ago. We talked with Yakovenko last week. I'm excited to be talking to you because Gary had mentioned you, Joe had mentioned you. Of course, I'm still trying to figure out what's what. And my understanding is that the big innovation here is proof of history. I know it's complicated, but if you could maybe walk me and Alex through this, we'd appreciate it. This is all borrowed from my experiences working in the mobile industry at Qualcomm. I wasn't working in wireless protocols, but just being part of that company for over a decade. Radio waves, electromagnetic waves seeped into my brain. So if you guys remember high school physics, if you have two towers that transmit at the same time or the same frequency, you get noise Mm -hmm. and information doesn't pass. So the first thing that anyone tried in radio in those protocols is they gave each tower a clock that's synchronized and then each tower can alternate by time when they transmit and that eliminates the interference and information can pass through and everybody can see the data that's being transmitted. In blockchains, you have a somewhat similar problem. You have these things called block producers that are proposing a block. If two of them propose a block at the same time, you get a fork and you don't know what's the actual state of the network. You can think of that as noise. 
So proof of history is this weird thing that's a clock outside of consensus. It's a source of time. It is a, a very rudimentary verifiable delay function. So it's a mathematical way to generate a data structure that proves that time has passed somewhere. And we use this data structure to construct almost like a sand clock or a water clock. As the level goes up, you can see the time is passing. And it's a bad clock in terms of telling you that it's 2.20 right now, but it's a good clock in terms of preventing somebody from lying to you that 10 hours had passed when in fact only one second has passed. I know part of what you were trying to tackle is front running. So with other cryptocurrencies, people can get ahead of a public trade. So if we can eliminate this noise, we can increase the number of blocks per second. And we can also make those blocks as big as possible. We're not bound by these limits that are causing Ethereum to be running at 12 second blocks. Solana runs at 400 millisecond blocks. And it's only 400 milliseconds because we still haven't done a good enough job optimizing it down to 100 milliseconds. There is no limit. The limit is basically speed of light halfway around the world is how fast we can make this network go. And if it's faster, it's cheaper for users. And if you think about trading, the core piece for what trading depends on is actually censorship resistance, which is, in my mind, the most interesting thing about blockchain. So if you think about what happens when you set up a machine at the New York Stock Exchange, they connect your server there and they connect a cable that's exactly the same length from your server to their trading system as everyone else. They do that because they're guaranteeing you that you get the same fair market access as everyone else. And that's really what censorship resistant does. If the network is truly censorship resistant and there isn't anybody that has an unfair advantage to get ahead of anyone else, then it's fair open marketplace. And really the core piece of this starts with consensus and it's maximizing the number of participants. So everything that we do to make this thing faster and faster results in this better censorship resistance and therefore better markets. Can we be the world's price discovery engine? That's an interesting question to ask. I heard you speaking on another podcast. It was really interesting. You said you had this idea late night at a coffee shop in San Francisco. But I'm just wondering, now that you latched on the proof of history, is there anything to stop others from doing the same thing? Are there rivals that are also doing this? Not yet. It is all open source. There's a fork of Solana that's trying to do like an EVM thing, but it's a smaller project that's starting out. There isn't like a set of our biggest competitors that are going to rework their system and use this. And a lot of this comes from, it just takes a lot of work to build these systems, right? It takes two to three years to build a new layer one. And... You can't really take an idea from one and stuff it in the other one. It's just too hard. And if you try to do that, you're going to set yourself back by six to nine months at the least and potentially introduce bugs, vulnerabilities. So, so far, we're the only ones that are really building this professory thing that use a verifiable delay function as a source of time. Gary Tan was talking with us about the important transition that Ethereum is going through in moving to proof of stake. I understand that Solana also leverages that. Why is proof of stake such a big switch for the industry? So proof of stake is a solution to this idea of civil resistance, which is a problem of how do I know that the people I'm talking to on the internet are actual people and not bots, right? How do I know that when I run a poll on Twitter and I see that 10,000 people said that blue is their favorite color, that that wasn't the same person clicking over and over? 
And with proof of work, that solution is thermodynamic energy, right? You go find some power plant that'll get you cheap electricity and you spin up a bunch of miners and you solve this puzzle and that's your vote. That solution represents real energy being spent, which is hard to fake. I can't go create a bunch of fake power plants, right? That requires real money. Proof of stake is a way to remove that component of energy and use the coin, the underlying token itself as that civil mechanism. So if you believe that the system's bug-free and that there's a limited supply of these tokens, which you can verify by looking at the code and, and seeing that proof effectively in the code itself, you can take those tokens and use that as a weight when validators vote to confirm the state and to confirm the safety of the system. So that weighting is the voting part and the civil resistant mechanism comes from the fact that there's limited supply of these coins. So the big switch for the industry is one, I think it's moving away from electricity as a source of safety, which is problematic from an environmental perspective. But it's a fundamental switch, I think, because with proof of work and Bitcoin, there is this argument for store of value that this is digital gold. And that's really fundamentally tied to this thermodynamically verifiably proven puzzle that's really, really hard to break. And that's kind of like the secret sauce to Bitcoin is that when I examine the ledger, I can actually compute that it's going to take me billions of dollars of electricity to go try to break that data structure, to build an alternative version of events. With proof of stake, you don't have that guarantee. If somebody, for example, was able to steal all the keys from the genesis of any proof of stake network, they can create an alternative ledger, an alternative set of financial history that is just as valid as any other one, effectively at no cost, right? That's this big, big step. I think it's it's a big step for the industry to leap forward. And I don't know if proof of stake systems will truly replace uh, proof of work based systems in this digital gold store of value use case. But they're faster and you can do way, way more cooler things on them. <laughs> Ethereum's working on this transition to 2.0. How do you think that's go going? It seems that that's probably your most direct competitor. So if it pulls it off and it's able to scale as it says it will, does that make what you're working on less relevant? Can you coexist? Ethereum is moving slowly because they have a lot at stake. It would be devastating for the entire industry if, if Ethereum made a mistake that put 500 billion worth of ETH at risk, right? I think that would be bad for everybody. So that's really part of their challenge. The other part to it is that philosophically, Ethereum is just building a different system. This guy Tarun made this comment on, on a podcast I was with that it's a lot easier to pull a cart with a dozen horses than 10,000 chickens. Um, <laughs> so Ethereum is trying to do this 10,000 chickens thing. 100,000 chickens, actually. And potentially, if they succeed, they could maybe build something that has those same properties of store of value as Bitcoin. What we're focused on is this censorship-resistant piece for trading. We really want to maximize that number of entities at any given moment in time, because that's the piece that's really most important for price discovery. When a market maker submits an order into a market that's running in these decentralized protocols, they need guarantees that no one's going to front run them, no one's going to reorder it after they get confirmed. And all those really depend on maximizing that set of participants. What is the smallest set and how large can we make it around the world? How geographically distributed can we make it? So that to us is a different challenge than 
what Ethereum 2.0 is doing. You can see based on their proposed technical specs, Ethereum is going to have these five to 10 second block times. The shards that they are building are going to be much more expensive than Solana in terms of transactions. And the execution environment is much more limited than Solana's. Those are differences that are good for some use cases and bad for others. So the use case we're focusing on is, is price discovery. And so this is where we're going to excel. What are the use cases for Ethereum if it's that much slower? Again, this is a tough philosophical question. Do you believe that 100,000 chickens is <laughs> as good as thermodynamic energy that Bitcoin is creating? <laughs> it's possible they succeed as global settlement layer. And Solana is execution and clearing where that information is synthesized, where price discovery happens, but those higher level applications occur, you know, the NASDAQ, the NYSE, the decentralized CME, maybe that's Solana. And then the settlement part where assets eventually end up on Ethereum and then settled out. And, and those are different enough functions to where I'm not sure you can succeed in both at the same time if you tried. What kinds of conversations are you having with Wall Street players who you would need to trust what you're building? I guess, who are the Wall Street players? I don't know if we talk to that many folks from Wall Street. I don't know if Wall Street folks are moving as fast as startups and crypto. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is stopping anyone at Wall Street to using the exact same code base to go build a product? We don't have to hold their hand to go do it, right? It's it's literally maybe like two hours worth of, of work to launch your own market and start trading on it if that's what they want to do. And it's totally, the price of Solana has risen 7,000% in the last year. Bitcoin is up 427%. Ethereum is up 1,700%. To a certain extent, I suppose it's the law of small numbers, but to what do you think this is attributable? Was there one event that really triggered this rise? I think that that's really part of the craziness of crypto markets. It's hard for me to tell why some numbers go up, some numbers go down. <laughs> I, I suppose part of that is just developers discovering the network and building cool applications on it. And that in itself is the function of an ecosystem, right? Is when people can self-serve and, and build stuff that they want and go to market. That part of growth, I think, is the, the secret weapon of decentralized networks versus any incumbents like... Bank of America or Visa or whatever, right? Those big companies can't iterate and move as fast as a open source global set of engineers that can just come together and code whenever they want to. My time at Qualcomm is working at a big company. It seems like there's a ton of resources, right? They can accomplish anything. But you saw us working on proprietary operating systems while the Linux guys were just working first for fun, right? And it seemed like this was a weird hobby that people had to code operating systems at night on the weekend. And then all of a sudden, that's a de facto mobile OS and Android. There's currently 608 validators helping to secure the Solana network. How does that compare to other protocols? I think proof of stake networks, we're one of the largest ones. Avalanche might have a bit, few more nodes in their network, maybe eight or 900. Our testnet has over 1,700 already. So that's been growing really quickly. We started with 40 when we launched. So that, that's been insane. <laughs> and, and that was three insane. years ago? So, no, the network went live a year ago. So these nodes are constantly reproducing the exact same state transitions. You submit a transaction, one machine runs it, and that transaction is propagated to all of these other nodes, and they all also run it. And then they confirm the result. 
So as long as all of them agree, or two-thirds of them agree, then that transaction is considered correct, and the network moves forward. I saw that your foundation just raised $100 million from five strategic crypto funds. Are you actively looking to raise more capital, and how are you using that capital to grow the platform? That was the announcement for the ecosystem funds to invest in these projects that are building on top of Solana. This is a capital raise for foundation operations or, or things like that. This is us partnering with LKX and building an ecosystem fund to go invest in, in projects launching on Solana. That's really exciting to us because we see that there's a lot of interest for from folks to go build these products and innovate. We see that interest from crypto operators like exchanges and, and projects, more established players to see that happening in our network. Really excited about that. Have you spun out any companies or not yet? It's too early, right? The cool thing that, that we see that's really promising is issuers like USDC that are set up a node to run on Solana and started issuing USDC in the network. From the demand from projects and users using those projects, there's over 500 million USDC in circulation. And that to me is the hardest number to fake in the space, right? That requires dollars in a bank for that to be issued. And that means that there's real financial activity happening here. Is that how you're making money right now, the trading of these coins while you're building up your network? Labs was funded through this seed level funding in those early days from venture capital, a lot of it from Silicon Valley, to go build this protocol. So once that's up and running and live, Labs still has some funding and we're actively searching, what are the businesses that we can build here? How do we make money as a company like Consensus? Have you raised $21.8 million in equity? We've never sold equity. So that funding was for the token itself. We haven't announced any more sales. What did you think of Elon Musk's decision to stop accepting Bitcoin as payment for cars? And do you believe that when he says he's suddenly becoming climate-focused again? I'm surprised as an engineer, he didn't know how Bitcoins were generated. <laughs> right. Isn't that that's <laughs> really surprising, isn't it? It's strange. It, it's not like there's a lot of love for fossil fuels from the crypto community. There's a lot of love for this idea of uh, self-created monetary security and what comes from that and all the benefits from censorship resistance and things like that. If we banned all fossil fuels and you had to mine Bitcoin with solar energy, that would be awesome. That's great. Well, Anatoly, thank you so much. For sure. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And fellow Warriors fans, keep the faith. Tonight was a tough one, I know. Mm -hmm.